Well, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1. This will be our fourth lesson in the Gospel of Mark. And it's been a challenging but a very rewarding study for me personally to this point. I'm looking forward to what we have ahead of us, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you this morning. Now, last week, I did cut a little bit short, and so I want to take a look again at some of the things we began to look at last week. And the big idea that we discovered in the opening verses of Mark's gospel, and that's really the key, is we're not reading into scripture what we want or trying to preach contemporary events, but instead we're discovering the truth that God has laid down in his word and laying that out as the spiritual food Man shall not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we are here to feast upon the riches of God's word this morning. And so as we looked into Mark chapter 1, we saw that the big idea that the opening stories, the opening verses of this gospel teach us is that Jesus Christ has the authority to teach us. That when it comes to what we personally believe, What we believe about ourselves, what we believe about God, what we believe about what is right and wrong, and what is the good life, that all of these issues, Jesus Christ is the one who has authority from God to teach us God's ways. And he demonstrated this authority by his mighty miracles, by his acts of power, both over demons and over physical disease. Now, As I looked over my notes from last week, there was a key verse at the end that I wanted to bring in as the intro this morning from John chapter 7, verse 46. And this is in Jerusalem. It's not here in Mark's gospel. But what we saw and heard from the Lord Jesus Christ last week and how the crowds were marveling at his teaching as one who spoke with authority, it reminded me of what John recorded when the officers of the temple went to arrest Jesus Christ when he was in Jerusalem, they came back empty-handed. And the rulers who had sent the officers to arrest him asked them, well, why didn't you bring him? And they answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And so what a privilege to have the gospel accounts and to be able to hear the words of Jesus, to be able to see the deeds of Jesus, to behold the authority and power he had from God, from the Holy Spirit, that amazed and astounded everyone and continues to amaze us today as we read it. Now, when we come to the application of the authority of God, I really wanted us to focus on the purpose for which Jesus Christ came. Because he had that authoritative teaching. And so, just as we read here in the Gospel of Mark, we also have the parallel account in Luke. Mark gets in chapter 1, what Luke takes four chapters to get to, but it's the same point in the story where Luke records the words of Jesus, where he said, I must preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And that corresponds with where we left off last week, Looking into Mark chapter 1, you can see the verse there in verse 38. He said to them, let's go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus Christ came in order to declare the truth from God. And he didn't speak on Moses' authority. He didn't speak on the authority of the Old Testament. He didn't quote from any rabbis. No, he spoke as the incarnate word of God, that he is the way. He is the truth. And therefore, he was able to speak to people, I say to you, with such amazing authority, preaching this good news of the kingdom of God. And then also, I wanted to bring this verse in at the beginning this morning, Mark chapter 9, verse 7. Let's, let's review that. Look in your Gospel of Mark there in front of you, Mark chapter 1. And we find there this verse in the middle of Jesus getting into ministry and astounding everyone and, and the crowds starting to seek him out in his home base of operations of Capernaum. We find that verse 35 says, Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is with you. And that 
finding him and searching for him and, and telling him everyone is looking for him, well, they're telling him that because they assume he doesn't know that. And they're telling him that because they think he has a responsibility to give in to what people want. That the people are seeking after Jesus, and so Jesus should be there for them to come to him in Capernaum. So there's a little bit of a rebuke going on in the disciples kind of telling Jesus that he's not living up to people's expectations in this moment. He shouldn't be out here in the wilderness by himself. There's work to do in Capernaum. And so I wanted to make sure that we get the application of that that I didn't have time for last week, that we need to stop telling God and stop telling Jesus what to do and instead be more careful to watch and listen and to follow God's lead. So often that we, we always think that our ideas are the best ideas. You know, that's, that's the best way to get somebody to adopt an idea is to make them think it's their own idea. Because we have this bias towards our own ideas. And unfortunately, that carries over even into our relationship with God. And we tend to think that our ideas are good and that God should be listening to our ideas. And instead, we need to humble our hearts and recognize that we are little children who are foolish, that we don't have any good ideas, and we need to just be looking at Jesus, watching him, and and following his lead. That's a true heart of submission, recognizing his authority, recognizing his wisdom. We're not going to tell him anything that he doesn't know. We're not going to give him any plan that's better than his. Let's just watch and follow in his footsteps. And that was the call of discipleship. Follow me, not lead me. We're not here to lead Jesus. We're here to follow Jesus, and he's going to make us fishers of men. All right, so that is what really was in my heart, is why I wanted you to see Mark chapter 9, verse 7, where it says that at his transfiguration, Peter again spoke up and was babbling about things he didn't know about, and then the voice of God came from the heavens and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. So we ought to stop telling Jesus what to do and be listening to what he tells us to do. That's one of the key applications from last week. And that's a sin that we have to confess, is that we're always wanting to tell God what to do instead of listening carefully to what he says. And this ties in with what I said before about the application tool spec. We do have sins to confess. We are foolish like the disciples. And as we go through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see time and time again how the mistakes that they make are the same type of mistakes that we make. And we want to confess that as sin. And then we want to believe the promises. The key promise I want you to remember from last week is the promise that Jesus gave to his disciples. Follow me and I will. When he says, I will, that's a promise. And you might say, well, you know, I, I don't know what God can do with me. I'm, I'm not a great evangelist. I'm not a fisher of men. You know, that's, that's other Christians that can do that. Well, Jesus has given you a promise. You follow him, and he will make you a fisher of men. And that's on him. And he doesn't fail in anything that he undertakes, and he doesn't fail to keep his promises. And so whatever lack you might have, it's not a problem for God. God can make you a fisher of men. And then the example to follow is that we want to teach with authority the way that Jesus Christ taught with authority. And here I wanted to bring in Titus chapter 2, verse 15. You might say, well, I'm not Jesus, so I don't have Jesus' authority. And of course that's true. But Jesus Christ gives his authority to us so that we have the word of God, we have the truth that has come from God, and God wants us to go out in the world not with suggestions of, well, maybe you should try this, or maybe this is a good idea, but God wants us to go out into the world the way that Jesus did and said, this is the truth that comes from God, and you are accountable for God as to how you respond to that truth. And I'm encouraging you to believe it and to act on it. So we want to teach with the authority that Christ entrusts us with, and that's what Paul was encouraging Titus to do. Paul, the senior missionary, Titus, the younger Christian worker. And Paul wrote to Titus and said, declare these things. I almost made Titus chapter 2 our scripture reading this morning where you could see all of the these things that Titus was supposed to declare. Instruction to older men, instruction to young men, instruction to older women, instruction to young women. These are the things that the word of God speaks directly to and that we have a responsibility to exhort and rebuke with all authority. And I like what he says there, let no one disregard you. How can you let no one disregard you? I mean, people can do what they want to do. You don't have control over what other people do. Well, you can make sure that in God's house, in God's family, that's what we are, things are done God's way. 
And that's why God has given us tools to be able to make sure that the authority of God's word is honored and upheld and that we're all not just doing our own thing and disregarding God's instructions and God's commandments. You know, any church that does not practice church discipline is a church that has failed to function as God's family. Because no longer do we have any way of making sure that no one disregards the commandments of God if we're not practicing church discipline. And so, as has been wisely noted by other pastors, as soon as the church stops practicing church discipline, it is on its way to no longer being a church. Now, with that in mind, that review from last week, some of the application from last week's message, let's talk about this week, what we're going to be getting into in Mark's Gospel. As we saw the power of Jesus and the authority of Jesus last week, this week we're going to see more of that, but we're going to see how that starts to create a problem and that there is going to be rising opposition to the public ministry of Jesus Christ. When you come into the world with authority from God to speak the word of God, well, you're going to face opposition because there already are people in the world who think that they have authority to speak from God. And if you start saying different things from what they're saying, well, then there's going to be a conflict of authority. And anytime there's a conflict of authority, things can get violent because people will violently defend their authority. And that's what we're going to see happen throughout the Gospels. And that's where the Gospels lead to in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Why was Jesus Christ crucified? Well, we know theologically he was crucified for our sins. But what was the earthly reason? Why did people shout out, crucify him? Well, those people who were shouting out crucify him, their main motivation, the scripture reveals to us, is that they were jealous of Jesus' authority and that Jesus was contradicting their authority. Their authority was threatened by Jesus and so they had to destroy him if they wanted to protect their authority. And what do people with power and authority want to do? They want to protect their power and authority and they're willing to stomp on anybody who's going to get in the way of that power and authority. And that's what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. You don't come into the world with this kind of authority and not have opposition. That's what we learn from being disciples of Jesus and we want to follow in his footsteps. Now, we pick it up here in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. Let's read that. You follow along in your Bible. I'll read it out loud for us. It says this. A leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, You can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will. The leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, what we see here in these verses is not the opposition that we're going to see beginning in chapter 2, but what we see here is that the crowds start to become a problem for the ministry of Jesus. Jesus came to do what? He came to preach the word, and the crowds get so excited about the miracles of Jesus that it actually starts to hinder the ability of Jesus to proclaim the word. He can't go into the synagogues like he wants to and proclaim the gospel because there's just too much chaos, there's just too much excitement around his miracle ministry. And so here we have a man who is well-meaning, who is thankful, who is rejoicing, but his disobedience to the command of Jesus actually hinders the ministry of Jesus. Interesting, very interesting passage here. Let's take a, a closer look at the press agent, leper, who was too much of a blabberer and actually became a problem. Now let's talk about leprosy first. What is leprosy? Well, in the broader term of leprosy, the people in the ancient world would have used it to describe any number of skin diseases falling under the name of leprosy. But the one that was the most dreaded, the one that was the most feared and would be most associated with leprosy is what has come to be known in our time as Hansen's disease. Now, in the ancient world, there was not a knowledge of pathology. We didn't know where diseases came from. 
The first person to observe bacteria in a microscope was in the 17th century. And we didn't recognize that those bacteria that we saw under the microscope were actually the cause of disease until about the 1860s. And then we didn't develop any antibacterial treatments for some of these diseases until the 1900s. 1910 was the first antibiotic used against disease. So the ancient world didn't know what caused leprosy. They didn't know how to distinguish necessarily one form of leprosy, one skin disease from another skin disease. But the Old Testament does talk a lot about the disease of leprosy, and and that's back in Leviticus chapter 13. The whole chapter has instructions about how to deal with leprosy. And I wanted you to see just a couple of verses there in Leviticus 13. And jot this down in your notes. Where the law says, the law of Moses, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, Hansen's disease is a communicable disease, and it's a very nasty communicable disease. It's, it's one of the last diseases in the world that you would want to be afflicted with. It's caused by a slow-growing bacteria that attacks the nerves in the skin. The largest organ in your body is your skin, and the nerves in your skin are very important. And this disease will slowly destroy the nerves of your skin. Now, when we think about leprosy, you've probably got in your mind some pictures of some of the effects that leprosy brings about on the body. And we wonder, why isn't leprosy as common today as it was in the ancient world? Well, like I said, a lot of that is because we have developed antibiotics that properly treat this disease. Each year in the United States, there's about 150 cases of Hansen's disease. But in other parts of the world where they're more poor and they have less access to medical treatment, there's much more. There's about 250,000 cases a year around the world, mostly in India, Brazil, and Indonesia. And since the 1950s, we've been able to stop the disease once it's diagnosed with an array of antibiotics, but we've never been able to reverse the damage that's already done. But what you see here in Jesus' cleansing of the leper is not just a stop of the disease. He doesn't just wipe out the bacteria that's destroying the nerves of the skin. But the man becomes clean. He becomes whole once again. And so Jesus reverses miraculously all of the damage that has been done by this disease to this man. And that is truly a remarkable miracle. The Jews had a saying that was written down, that to cure leprosy was as difficult as to raise the dead. That's in the Jewish Talmud. And so Mark singles out this miracle as one that particularly caused problems for Jesus because this is as powerful in the public mindset as raising the dead. And we'll find out later in the Gospels when Jesus raises the dead, he also tells them, don't tell anyone. Because it's one thing to go around and be healing a paralyzed person or to be opening the eyes of the blind, but to cure a leper in this fashion or to raise the dead, that just creates chaos once that word gets out. This is just too amazing, too astounding. And that's why Jesus told him not to tell anyone. Now you see there in verses 41 and 42 that Jesus was moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him. And here, I love it that he reaches out his hand and touches him to perform the healing. He he could have done it any way he wanted to, but Jesus has different ways that he performs the healings. And you imagine he's got a reason for each one of those ways that he does it. And here I imagine that he reaches out and touches him because the leper hasn't been able to touch anyone for years. And no one has been willing to touch him for years. And now here Jesus reaches out and touches him, and that is the means by which he is cleansed. Now, The reason why nobody would touch him is because leprosy is a communicable disease. It's not quite as communicable as some people have feared in history, but it still is. And the fact that Jesus is not afraid of getting the disease, and that Jesus has basically the opposite is what happens with Christ. Whereas normally disease is what is spread through contact, but here health is spread through contact. So Jesus has a contagious healthiness about him, if you want to kind of put it in those terms. And so his touch 
eradicates the disease when normally the touch would be spreading the disease from one person to another. So I love that. But Jesus really does surprise us by sternly charging him and sending him away at once. And that's strong language that we have there in verse 43. Jesus could not have been any more clear about what his instruction was and how important it was that this man follow his instructions. We find out that he does not. You would think that he would. You would think, well, I mean, he owes his healing to this man. You'd think he'd be very careful to do what he says. But for whatever reason, he's overwhelmed, he's overcome, he can't keep quiet about it. His excitement overtakes his gratitude and his obedience And instead, he is overwhelmed and is talking freely about it, spreading the news everywhere. Jesus had asked him, had commanded him, more precisely, to not talk to anyone, but instead to show himself to the priest. And we learn about this in Leviticus chapter 14. There was a law that was written down for how to purify ceremonially yourself after your leprosy has been cured. Now, normally Hansen's disease would not be cured up until modern times. There really was no cure for it. But like I said, there was a variety of skin diseases that all went under the umbrella of leprosy, and they didn't necessarily know how to distinguish one from another. And so you might get some other skin disease that might go away, and then you'd be cured, and you could go and show yourself to the priest, and he could declare that you were clean, and then you'd make the sacrifice that was there in Leviticus chapter 14. You can read all about it in Leviticus 14. And Jesus commands him to do that, to follow the instructions of Moses. And he says he wants him to do it as a proof to them. What does Jesus mean by a proof? A proof of what? Is he talking about a proof of his cleansing? Well, probably not. Is he talking about proof that Jesus was obedient to the law? Well, probably not. I think the proof here is the proof that there is a mighty prophet of God in Galilee. Now, Jesus didn't need any more press in Galilee. The word was already getting out from all of his other miracles and healings. He didn't need any more press there. But what he wanted the man to do was to go to Jerusalem, where the priesthood was centered, where you would offer these sacrifices at the temple. And he wanted those priests who were at the head of the temple cult, properly defined, in Jerusalem to hear about this miracle. Now, they had probably been hearing a lot about Jesus' miracles, But he wanted them to hear about this miracle because of how powerful it is, how amazing it is, how unprecedented it is. And this would be proof to them that God had raised up and sent a mighty prophet and more than a prophet here and that they should be on alert to listen to what he has to say. This would be an opportunity for the priests in Jerusalem to recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that they would not have availed themselves of that opportunity, but God still wants to give them that proof. He wants to give them that evidence, even knowing their hardness of heart and that they're going to reject it. But the man doesn't obey, he doesn't do it, and he causes problems for Jesus. Now, he's not the only one who is talking about the miracles and the ministry of Jesus and making it difficult for Jesus to enter into a city, but he certainly put a lot of fuel on the fire because of this astounding miracle, this particularly amazing miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us be careful that we don't end up making the same mistakes that the crowds did in Jesus' time. We've talked before here about how Jesus Christ is looking for followers, not for fans. This man becomes a fan of Jesus. He's around telling everybody about Jesus, but he's not obeying what Jesus said. That's the difference between a fan and a follower. There's a lot of people who are fans of Jesus. They're excited about what's going on in the church. But if you're not doing what Jesus Christ instructs you to do, then you're not really helping the cause. Good intentions are not enough. Good intentions have unintended consequences. This man has negative consequences on the ministry of Jesus Christ because he is a fan and not a follower. And the crowds end up being gawkers instead of being godly. And this is the difference between goats and sheep. We're not looking for the goats. We're looking for the sheep, the ones who are going to obey the teaching of Jesus Christ. Those who are not coming to Christ following idols of health and success and self-determination, but people who are wanting to truly listen to the words of life that come from his mouth. That's what we're looking for. We don't want to be like the crowds 
who are getting in the way of the real ministry of the Lord. Let's continue on then into Mark chapter 2. And here, starting in Mark chapter 2 and leading into Mark chapter 3, Mark gives us five accounts, five different stories, that point to the rising opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ that are going to lead in chapter 3 to the Pharisees going out and holding counsel about how to destroy Jesus. So it doesn't take long for the spiritual leaders to recognize the threat that Jesus is to their authority and to make the determination that something must be done. He must be destroyed if they're going to protect their position. It starts there in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Follow along in your Bibles. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Notice how Mark is always emphasizing that. He was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Amazing. And he said to the paralytic, Son, forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The scribes are offended by the Lord Jesus Christ here in this story, this account, because he exercises authority to forgive sins. And they believe and would teach publicly that no one has authority to forgive sins except God, and so he is contravening their authority. He's teaching publicly contrary to what they have taught and what they would teach in public. So this is a conflict of authority between Jesus and the scribes. Now, let's take a closer look at the miracle first. So Jesus is at probably Peter's home. When it says that he was back in Capernaum, I don't think he had bought or owned a home there, but he was probably staying in the house of Peter. And that as he was teaching, there was a a group of five, four people carrying the paralytic on his stretcher, who were trying desperately to get close to Jesus to have him heal this paralyzed man. We don't know what caused his paralysis. We don't know how long he'd been in that state. That's not the focus of the story. The focus of the story is on the extreme measures that they took in order to get this man in front of Jesus. They couldn't get in the door. They couldn't get through the crowds. And so they came up with the idea. Let's go up to the roof. And in those days, the roofs were flat. People would have a staircase that went up on the outside of the house up to the roof. And you'd go up there for a number of reasons, and it's kind of like our patio, kind of like our back patio or front porch. And so they go up there, and and the roofs were made with trees that would be the beams going across, and so rooms could only be so big because trees were only so big in that area, and you'd get the the long tree to, to form your roof beams, and then over those beams, you'd put materials, clay, and other things that would keep the water out, of course. And so they have to first remove the tiles, and they have to kind of dig down to the beams, and then they have to unroof the roof. That's really the language that Mark uses here. They're unroofing the building. And you can imagine Jesus in the building, smaller than this, it's a house, and he's teaching, and then all of a sudden you hear some commotion up on the roof, and, and you know, particles stop falling down as they're digging through the roof, and you're wondering, what's going on up there? And then the guys are starting to remove the beams from the roof, and you wonder if Jesus kept talking, or if you know, everyone just stopped and watched what was going on. Then they, they lowered the guy down, so they had to have ropes tied to the stretcher, and you want to be pretty careful when you're lowering a paralytic down from the roof down into a room that you together on that. So 
you know, this covers it very briefly, but this would have taken some time, and you wonder what everyone was thinking, and you can see why this is a story that stuck with the disciples, and they kept on telling about this remarkable event in their time with Jesus. But when Jesus saw their faith, notice that phrase, he saw their faith, and that is something that I think preaches well, that faith is something that can be seen. Faith is something that demonstrates itself. Faith in and of itself is invisible, but faith issues forth in actions that can be seen. And that's what James was talking about when, when he said that you've got to show me your faith. I've got to be able to see your faith in action to know that your faith is real, that your faith is living, that your faith is a saving faith. And so Jesus sees their faith in action, and that's what causes him to announce that this man's sins are forgiven. Now, the authority to forgive sins is a remarkable authority. And Jesus had that authority when he was on the earth. As the Son of Man, he makes it known that he has this authority. He didn't have to say this publicly, but he does say it publicly. Jesus does not shy away from confrontation with religious authorities. He is willing to put himself out there and say, I am different. I am not like what you've heard before, and I'm teaching things that are new, things that are powerful. And he knows that this is going to offend people, and yet he still does it because it is right to demonstrate true authority and even it is right to undermine false authority because that leads to false beliefs and he came to lead us to the truth. So the scribes, they're thinking that he's blaspheming because only God is allowed to forgive sins. Now, I looked in the Old Testament to find a passage that would say specifically only God can forgive sins. And of course, there is no such passage in the Old Testament you can understand why they would get that idea and why that theology would develop, and it is a, a reasonable application of the Old Testament scriptures, but we have to be careful that we don't allow our reason to become as authoritative as scripture, and we don't allow our traditions to become as authoritative as scripture. Now, so the Jewish people thought, well, Messiah is going to have tremendous authority, but they did not think that he was going to have authority to forgive sins. They thought only God has that authority, and they were wrong on that point that the Messiah is God in the flesh. And so therefore, being God, Messiah does have the authority to forgive sins. Now, Jesus does not identify himself directly as the Messiah in this story. Notice he says the Son of Man in verse 10. The Son of Man has authority. And there's been a lot written on what does Jesus mean when he calls himself the Son of Man. Because this is Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospels. Mark uses the Son of Man to refer to Jesus, usually on Jesus' own lips, I think always, 14 times in Mark's Gospel, 80 times in the Gospels in general. And what this goes back to is the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, there's a prophecy concerning God's coming kingdom where he talks about, in these night visions, Daniel beholds with the clouds of heaven the coming of one like a Son of Man who comes to the ancients of days and was presented before him. And to this, this Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. So you would think from a passage like this, with Jesus going around calling himself the Son of Man, that everyone would connect the dots, but that's not actually the case. This passage about the Son of Man in Daniel 7, 13, and 14 wasn't as well known as some of the other messianic passages. And so when Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he was kind of giving some, some breadcrumbs that could lead people to the truth that he was the Messiah without openly proclaiming that he was the Messiah. Because, we'll get more into this as we continue throughout the Gospels, but Jesus wanted people to understand who he was as the Son of God, as the Son of Man, as God come in the flesh, before they recognized him as the Messiah, because Messiah had such political connotations with it and would have caused the people to try to force him to be king and to join in a rebellion against the Roman government. And that's not what he came for. He didn't come to overthrow the Romans. He came to die for our sins. And so he wanted to reveal who he was without causing a political rebellion. This is why he used the term son of man to refer to himself where people would be able to figure out who he was but it didn't have the inflammatory connotations that openly proclaiming himself as the Messiah would have. 
If he went around saying, I'm God's Messiah, well then immediately he would have had opposition from Herod and the Romans and, and all of that. He was avoiding that by being wise in how he presented his person. Now, we'll talk more about the Son of Man as we continue because Jesus is going to use that often. But what we see here in this passage, and I want you to look again at verse 9, when Jesus says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. And here we see that the miracle that Jesus performs of the healing of the paralyzed man is a demonstration of his spiritual power. That what's really important in this event is not the healing of the paralyzed man. What's important in this event is the forgiveness of his sins. And that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And the actual healing is there to show that Jesus can forgive sins. And that what he says, his words are true. So you get into a public debate. Can the Son of Man forgive sins? Can the Son of Man not forgive sins? And the Pharisees and the scribes could make their arguments on this tradition and that tradition and this scripture and that scripture. And Jesus says, well, your arguments are fine, but boom, healed. There's the authority. There's the power. Everyone can see it. You don't have to be an expert in the Old Testament law to be able to sort through all of these issues. Jesus just makes it clear for everybody who's right. Who's right, the scribes here or am I right? Who's got the power of God working through them? And so the miracles were the public demonstration of the authority of his teaching and the truthfulness of his words. That's when he says, which is easier to say? Well, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can see it. But it's hard to say, rise, pick up your bed, and walk, because if the guy doesn't do it, then you've been shown to be a fraud. And so the power of the words there. All right, well, let's go on to the next story here in verses 13 to 17. The scribes are starting to recognize this man as a problem and a threat to them in the healing of the paralytic. But really, it was the forgiveness of his sins that was the real issue there. Let's go on and see what else caused problems between Jesus and the religious leaders when he called Levi to be his disciple. All right, so Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, let me tell you a little bit about tax collectors in the ancient world. They weren't any more popular then than they are now. And they were much less popular then than they are now because they were crooked. They were extortioners. They were corrupt. See, the, the Roman tax system was, I'd say, less perfect than on our tax system. And as much as you might not like our tax system, it's better than what they had because what they did was they would farm out the collecting of taxes to the highest bidder. So who's going to be able to raise the most taxes for us? And, and different guys would say, well, I can raise this much taxes. I can raise this much taxes. And, and then the, the Roman government would say, all right, you got the high bid. You'll be my tax collector. And then they'd go out and raise as much as they possibly could, finding every nickel and dime they could squeeze from the people because they got whatever was left. So I told the Romans I'd raise this much. If I can raise even more than that, the rest is mine, right? So the tax collecting system was full of extortion and bribery and corruption and greed. And so when Levi made the decision to become a tax collector for the Romans against his own people, you can see that he had made the decision to give up his nation, his family, his community for money. That's the only thing that mattered to him. The only thing that matters to me is money because I'm giving up everything else that I could have in this community to become rich. And every tax collector made that trade. Every tax collector sold his soul and he sold out his nation for greed. And that's who Jesus came to seek and save. The only friends that a tax collector would have would be fellow tax collectors 
or other people who were outcasts from society. And so when Matthew, Levi, as he's also called, decides to throw a party for his conversion, for his repentance, notice when Jesus called him to follow, he was sitting at the tax booth. And you don't leave your place at the tax booth and expect that you're ever coming back. So he was repenting when he came and followed Jesus. He had made up his mind, I don't want money anymore. I made a wrong choice. I made a wrong decision in my life, and I'm regretting it, and I want more. And I want what Jesus has to offer. And so he leaves the tax booth, and he's not going back. And he throws a party because he's lost his income, but he's gained friends. He's gained a teacher. He's gained a relationship with Christ as a disciple, and he's inviting everyone that will come to his house, and the only people who will come are other tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus is feasting with them, with Levi. Now this offends the scribes of the Pharisees deeply. Jesus is a powerful force on the scene. Everyone's talking about him. Everyone's flocking to him. He's, he's getting a large following, and he's acting in ways that are completely contrary to the ways that they would act. And so they recognize his actions as a threat to them. That's really what's behind their question here of why does he eat with tax collectors? It's not that they're concerned about the tax collectors and sinners. They're concerned about their own status, the way people view them. If you don't go along with what our tradition has been teaching and what our authoritative position holds, then you are against us and you're undermining what we're trying to accomplish. You can't have any naysayers in the group. You've got to have everybody together, everybody following the teaching and the lead of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, Josephus tells us about the Pharisees and their scribes, and he says that at the time that we're talking about here in the first century, there was about 6,000 Pharisees scattered among all the villages and cities of the Jews in the Holy Land. And that would have been about 1% of the population. So about one out of 100 people you see is the Pharisee. And the Pharisees, Josephus says, were extremely influential among the common people. Those are his words writing in Antiquities. They were extremely influential among the common people. And Jesus, he's becoming very influential among the common people. And so this is where the conflict comes from. Who's going to influence? Who's going to lead? Who's the authority? And when it came to who you eat with and who you don't eat with, they had very strict rules about this type of thing. You can read about it in the Mishnah and in the Talmud. Jesus' answer to their question, which is really more of an accusation, is brilliant. I mean, how do you argue with this? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And when Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, what's he calling them to? Well, we don't have to search too far to figure it out. In the parallel account in Luke chapter 5, he says it more explicitly, I came to call to repentance. There's a call to repentance. That Jesus isn't there eating with tax collectors and sinners saying, you guys are great, you guys are right, you don't have anything in your life that needs to change, you're just doing everything that pleases God. That's not what he's doing there. But he's eating and drinking with the tax collectors and sinners without pride, without disdain, without making them feel like there's no hope for them and that God is completely done with them, while giving them the hope of repentance and salvation. And that's the way that we should be in the world. We should be like Jesus in the world. And so if there are people in our culture who have sold out the nation, who have sold out their souls for greed and for money, and there are, well then we don't hold them in contempt, but we go to them with humility and preach repentance, that it's not too late for you. You're still alive. You can have God. You can have eternal life. You can have the family of God. You can have fellowship. You don't have to be the outcast. You can be a part of what God is doing in the world. And our arms are open wide. And we're seeking and saving the lost. So let us have Jesus' attitude. We're not welcoming sinners without repentance, but we are holding out the hope of repentance for the worst sinners that are in our community, in our nation. Let us not be haters of the sinners, 
but instead be the friend of sinners the way that Jesus Christ was. And a friend isn't someone who confirms people in their wickedness. A friend is someone who gives the hope of repentance and a changed life and the grace of God. And that's the message that we have. All right, so I wanted you to see here in this regard 1 Timothy 1.15. One of these scribes of the Pharisees, one of these learned men who stood in that rabbinic tradition, he came to be saved. The same type of person who would have been grumbling at Jesus on this occasion, that's who Saul of Tarsus was. And so he wrote, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And so when Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, well, he's just speaking hypothetically, saying that those who don't think that they are sick don't go to the physician. But here, this righteous Pharisee, Paul, he recognized that he was not righteous, that his heart was full of sin, and that he had persecuted the church of God. And so he says, I am the chief. I am the foremost of sinners. And that's who Jesus Christ came into the world to save. So Jesus is there to save the scribes too, if they would just recognize that they're sinners and that they need to be saved. Let's go on to the third story here, the question about fasting. Pick it up in verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. As they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So he's forgiving sins. That contradicts their teaching. He's eating with sinners. That contradicts their teaching. And now he's breaking their rules about the Sabbath. He's undermining the most important teaching that the Jews held to that kept their national identity And it really established the scribes and the Pharisees as the respected spiritual leaders of the people. And so this is a direct attack on their authority when he says the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath law, you know, goes back to the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. And it's hard for us to understand just how important it was in the Jewish mindset to observe the Sabbath. We live in a time where we don't really have a holy day in our culture. You know, we used to have Sundays. It was a day that people didn't work on and stores weren't open. But but now everything happens on Sunday just like any other day of the week. But for the Jewish people, it was a matter of national pride. It was their very identity as a people. This is what makes us distinct. This is what makes us different. That we are God's people because we have circumcision and we have the Sabbath. And if you don't circumcise your child, and if you're not a Sabbath observer, you are not a part of our nation. You're not a part of our culture. You're not a part of God's work in the world. This was at the very heart of their spiritual identity. And the Pharisees, they had given answers to just about every question that you could ask about what constituted work on the Sabbath day. If you wanted to know, if a building falls down, am I allowed to go through the rubble for survivors? They answered that question. They talked about everything, what was allowed, what was not allowed. And it's all written down a century or two later in rabbinic Judaism and the texts that we have that go back to this time, the the traditions go back to this time. And so they had an understanding among them. They had discussed it, they debated it, they'd settled it, that you're not supposed to pick any grain on the Sabbath day and you're not supposed to rub it together or anything that would resemble threshing No harvesting, no threshing, not even one ear of corn on the Sabbath day. So they don't have a problem with the disciples picking grain from someone else's field because that was actually allowed explicitly by the law. In Deuteronomy 23-25, God said, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So you go into their vineyard and you want to eat a grape, you can pick a grape and eat it, but you're not going to be carrying out baskets of grapes from your neighbor's vineyard. You're not harvesting, but you can snack as you go by other people's fields. That was the law. It's a good law. 
I think it still applies today. You come over to my house and you want to pick a raspberry, have a raspberry. Just, just don't take away a whole basket full. It's, those are my raspberries. So they're not having a problem with them picking the grain. The fact that they're doing it on the Sabbath is the problem. And Jesus' response, his reply, is very interesting. He doesn't get into a debate about what's work and what's not work on the Sabbath day. He's not going to go at it the way that they normally go at it. That's what they would expect. They'd be like, you know, if you want to get in on this discussion we've been having for hundreds of years about what's work and what's not work and what's the proper way of observing the Sabbath, well then give your argument and we'll debate it and discuss it and may the best man win. But, but Jesus doesn't come at it that way. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I'm not here to discuss and debate with you what is work on the Sabbath day. I'm here to tell you I'm Lord. And it's not open for discussion. And bam, that is what really offended them. This is why they're like, this guy's got to go. Uh, he's not playing by the rules. He's not recognizing our authority. He's a real problem. So look at the story that Jesus brings up here from the Old Testament. He asked them, have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And that's kind of an insulting way to bring it up. You know, haven't you read this? Of course we've read it. We've read everything ten times. But it's like, well, yeah, you read it, but you didn't really see it, did you? So he's going to open up their eyes here to what they should have seen when they read about David when he was in need and hungry. And this was when he was on the run from Saul, and he goes to where the house of God is, the tabernacle. They hadn't built a temple yet in that time. The tabernacle that they had from the days of Moses. And Jesus mentions that it was in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. Now, I hate to get into this for time's sake, but I'd be remiss if I didn't. This is actually one of the most discussed passages in the Gospels about the accuracy, the historical accuracy of the Gospels. Because if you go back and you read in the text in 1 Samuel about this story, you find out that it's not Abiathar that is mentioned in the story, but it's Ahimelech. I'll put it up there for you from 1 Samuel chapter 21. David comes to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech is the one who gives him the bread. So why does Jesus say Abiathar if it was Ahimelech? And Abiathar turns out to be the son of Ahimelech. And shortly after this event, Ahimelech is killed by Saul for helping David. And Abiathar escapes. And Abiathar becomes the most important priest during the reign of David because he aligns himself with David even before David is king and risks his life for David. And so Abiathar becomes the important person and I think the connection that Abiathar has with David is why Abiathar is mentioned. Now, notice it says, in the time of Abiathar. So, was Abiathar alive when Ahimelech gave him the bread? Yes, he was. So, is this in the time of Abiathar? Yes, it was in the time of Abiathar. So, it's not strictly wrong. It's just unexpected. It's like, well, we would expect him to mention Ahimelech rather than Abiathar. And so people will try to accuse the Bible of a historical error. But if you actually look at it, it's not an error, it's just unexpected. And why Jesus said it that way, or why Mark wrote it that way, we have to ask them someday. I don't think we have a, a great answer for why Abiathar is mentioned here instead of Ahimelech. But if you want to be technical, it's not an error, because it was in the time of both of these men, right? But that aside, the main point here is that Jesus has this authority to decide what is lawful and what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And his whole approach to the Sabbath is very different from the Jewish people. And you see that his teaching was the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So this is just one example of the Sabbath tradition in conflict with Jesus' interpretation of the Sabbath and that the Pharisees had made the Sabbath into a burden. And God had never meant it to be a burden. God had always meant it to be a blessing to mankind. And so I brought up Exodus chapter 23, verse 12, where you see that this was supposed to be refreshment for the people of Israel, including the servants and even the animals in Israel. It was supposed to be refreshed on this day. But the way that the scribes and the Pharisees had interpreted and applied it with their traditions, their man-made traditions, had really made it a burden. And so Jesus, he comes to destroy that and say the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then that finally brings us to Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, where we're going to wrap this up and see why is it that Jesus and the scribes were always at loggerheads and why their authority was a competing authority. Look at what it says there, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to Jesus, 
Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Notice what he says next. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. So are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. The wineskins was made from the hide of a goat, usually a baby goat. And so when it was a new wineskin, it was soft, as fresh leather is. But leather, over time, it hardens and it becomes less flexible. So when wine is fermented, it takes time for that fermentation process to be complete. And so even fermented wine, when you put it into a wineskin, it's still going to ferment a little bit more, and you need some stretch, some flex in that wineskin, or else it's just going to make a hole. So this illustration is a, a parable. These are two short parables, the parable of the wineskins and the parable of the unshrunk cloth. And these are taken from things that everybody knows, you can't make any argument with, and showing how this is a spiritual lesson. And what's the spiritual lesson here? What is the new and what is the old? Well, it's very clear that the new is the teaching of Jesus, and the old is the teaching of the scribes, the Pharisees. But why are they so different from one another? Yeah, it's easy to see that he's referring to these as the new and the old, but, but what makes the new so different from the old, and why are they so incompatible with one another? Jesus is making it very clear here that his ministry is not just an update or a patch to what has come on before. You know, we're all used to updates and patches. Your phone updates every couple of weeks, it seems like, with a new patch. And Jesus said, that's not what we're doing here. When I've come, I'm doing something new. I'm not updating the old. I'm not patching the old. And this new thing is incompatible with what came before. And what came before... Well, some people would identify that with the law of Moses. And in some sense, the new covenant is a new covenant, and it is replacing the law of Moses. It's not just a, an update of the law of Moses. So in some sense, that's true. But I think there's more here than that, because Jesus is not so much contrasting himself with the law of Moses, but he's contrasting himself with the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees, the man-made religion that grew up around the law of Moses. And the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees are representative of false Christianity, false religion today. That just as in their had all kinds of traditions that had choked out the word of God and replaced the word of God and, and replaced it with man's authority, so today we have churches that are just founded upon traditions and the word of God has been left far behind. And that Christ has come and he's not at all compatible with that. What comes from man and what is of the flesh has nothing to do with what comes from God and is from the Spirit of God. And so the new is the Holy Spirit. The new is Jesus Christ. The new is the new creation, the new birth. And the old, well, that's just man-made fleshly religion. And that's what is completely incompatible. You can't put these two together. And they're always going to be at loggerheads. And that's the way it's going to be today. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, well then, you are, by your very actions, by your very attitudes, by your very words, contradicting everything that the traditionalists, the religionists, the conservative religious people are going to be holding and saying. And these do not get along. You know Ben Shapiro? He's in the old. He's got this man-made tradition. I can agree with him on a lot of political points. But when it comes to religion, when it comes to our relationship with God, we are opposed and there's no way to bring us together. It's not just that I'm a variation of what he believes. We're different things. And that's the way it is. That's the way it was. That's the way it's going to be until Jesus Christ comes back, makes all things new, and the traditions of man and all of their religion is going to be gone forever. But what Christ is accomplishing, what he's creating, the new heart, the new faith, the belief, the Holy Spirit, this is a foretaste of the world to come. Well, I went through that as fast as I could. Uh, appreciate you staying with me. There's a lot here, and when I was putting together my sermon outline, I didn't realize, you know, I put myself on a schedule to be ready for Passion Week by the time we get to Easter, and I didn't realize how hard it was going to be to get through some of this stuff. You're learning along with me. Let's have a closing word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've been able to spend 
wisely this morning, listening to the words of Jesus Christ, listening to him and his authority and power to forgive sins, listening to him and his authority and power to determine what is lawful and not lawful to do on the Sabbath, listening to him and finding out about how to love those who are sinners and to preach repentance towards those who have sold themselves to do evil. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus Christ is with us through his words, through his spirit, and that we can be his disciples in this day. May we do so in a way that pleases you, being separate from the old and and being new wine in Jesus Christ. Amen.